Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Uh, Earl and Doris came in and said they—I don't know—you didn't mention a number, but no, they've been to a number of funerals over uh, Christmas uh, time. Uh, and the family in uh, Alabama who lost their husband and all of this type of thing. Well, guess what our subject is tonight? Death. <laughs> so. Um, didn't plan it that way, but um, when we look at these two verses, 21 and 22 of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about two men, Jacob and Joseph, and uh, each of these men are giving deathbed pronouncements of faith. Uh, Their faith uh, challenges each one of us uh, to consider how will we approach what really is the most pivotal time in our life. Now, I understand. We don't know how we're going to die or when we're going to die. We could die instantaneously in a, in a massive car crash uh, that we didn't know was coming, kind of like what happened, I guess, in uh, Florida. I forget which part of Florida. Uh, last night or a couple of days ago where seven people died. Uh, or we could be uh, in a long, lingering illness and uh, very much aware that death is approaching uh, to the very end. We just don't know how it's going to come. But unquestionably, uh, that is the most pivotal time in life. Now, uh, certainly there are things that you can do at that late date, as it were. Uh, But hopefully all of us have prepared way before that for that time when we pass out of this life into the next life. Well, these two men... Uh, Jacob and Joseph really challenge us in this regard. Uh, is our faith, I ask the question, is your faith substantive, substantive enough to rejoice in God and his faithfulness on your deathbed? What do we learn? What can we learn from these two men of faith as they approach death with their impending death? Years ago, Billy Graham made this comment, which I think is appropriate as we consider this. He said, I have talked to doctors and nurses who have held the hands of dying people, and they say that there is as much difference between the death of a Christian and a non-Christian as there is between heaven and hell. Amen. Or oh my, depending on what shoes perhaps pajamas at this point, I don't know, you're in at that point. And and that is so, so true. Um, The hopelessness of of, of lost people 
there's all kinds of expressions uh, of, uh, from atheists and unsaved, even religious people out there who don't know the Lord, uh, on their impending death. Voltaire, that um, uh, well-known atheist of years ago, uh, on his deathbed, his biographer writes, he said this, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh, Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ. Here's a man who uh, thought he could just destroy the Bible in, in his lifetime. Uh, on his deathbed, he was beyond hope and just was a wretched individual. Edgar Allan Poe, God have mercy on my poor soul. Thomas Scott, who wrote anti-Christian books on his deathbed, said this, Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel there are both. And I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Thomas Hodds, Hobbes, British political theorist and mathematician, said this, I am taking a fearful leap into the dark. Is that how you approach death? A fearful leap into the dark? I hope not. Francis Newport, Sir Francis Newport, head of England's Infidel Club in the early part of the 1600s, the 17th century, said, You need not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one, and that I am in his angry presence. You need not tell me there uh, is no hell, for I already feel my soul slipping into its fires. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know that I am lost forever. Oh, that I was to lie upon the fire that never is quenched a thousand years to purchase the favor of God and be reunited to him again. But it is a fruitless wish. Millions of millions of years will bring me no nearer to the end of torments than one poor hour. Oh, eternity, forever and forever. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. But what hopelessness, what tragedy in that recognition at the end of his life. Yochanan ben Zakkai was a very religious rabbi, lived in the first century of uh, this era, in the time of Jesus. He was in the city of Jerusalem when it was besieged by the Romans. He escaped destruction, or he escaped death, he escaped annihilation by faking his death. He had his followers prepare a casket. He was put in that casket pretending to be dead. A, they carried him out of the city on a stretcher as though he was a corpse, dead. When he came out and uh, he jumped out of the casket, as it were, I'm not sure he jumped, uh, the Roman general was just uh, amazed by it all and gave him one wish. His wish was to start a Jewish academy up in uh, Jamnia, and he would go there and uh, he would uh, start this academy. It's on the Sea of Israel. It was there that the so-called oral law and the traditional interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures were systematized. 
He was a very, very famous teacher of Israel. Highly esteemed. Bernard Pick, in his 1888 volume, The Talmud, What It Is, records the deathbed scene with Yochanan ben Zakkai. His disciples addressed him. Rabbi, light of Israel, thou strong rock, right hand pillar, why dost thou weep? He answered them, if they were about to lead me before a king of flesh and blood, who is today here and tomorrow in the grave, who if he were angry with me, his anger would not last forever. If he put me in bondage, his bondage would not be everlasting. And if he condemned me to death, that death would not be eternal. Whom I could soothe with words and bribe with money. Yet even in these circumstances, I should weep. But now I am about to appear before the awful majesty of the King of Kings, before the Holy and Blessed One, who is and who lives forever, whose just anger may be eternal, who may doom me to eternal punishment. Should he condemn me, it will be to death without further hope. Nor can I pacify him with words, nor bribe him with money. There are two roads before me, one leading to paradise, the other to hell. And I not know by which of those I go. Should I not weep? This is a, 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 a righteous in the world's eyes man, a religious leader who had no clue which fork of the road he would go down when he came to that crossing the divide, as it were. The hopelessness of the lost. Now consider some believers. D.L. Moody said that someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. Mel Trotter, who was the founder of more than 65 rescue missions, said, I'm in perfect peace, resting alone on the blood of Christ. I find this amply sufficient with which to enter the presence of God. A.J. Gordon, who was a famous Baptist pastor and scholar, awaking from a day-long coma, was asked if he had one word for them before he departed. He lifted his head and loudly proclaimed, victory, and then died. Catherine Booth, wife of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, said, Is this death? Why, this is glorious. When someone objected that she was suffering, she responded, Oh, yes, the waters are rising, but so am I. Michael Faraday, speculations. I know nothing about speculations. I am resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer lives. And because he lives, I shall live also. How about the Apostle Paul? For me to die, for me to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I shall not, for I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. You know, believers uh, should face death with uh, certainty, with assurance, with victory, with rejoicing. Uh, I, re I remember uh, two instances uh, a number of years ago. Um, one was a relative who was dying, was at Baptist Hospital in Miami, uh, one of the best hospitals in southern Florida, I gather. And um, she was there dying. Uh, and this was being related to me by a relative. She said, I'm scared to death. And this relative said, what are you scared about? You, know, you have rails on your bed. You're in the best hospital there is. You're getting great care. She said, that's not what I'm scared about. I'm, uh, she says, I'm dying. And I have no idea where I'm going. I'm scared. There was a Jewish believer. Never remember his name. Remember his wife's name. Anybody who's named Cookie. Cookie Bush, you don't forget. Uh, that was her, I guess that was her nickname. I don't really know. But her husband, you remember her husband's name? Mr. Bush. Well, Mr. Bush was in the hospital, and he was in and out of a coma. He was dying, and uh, you know, she, I think I, we weren't married at the time. I was at the funeral. You were probably, were you at the funeral? I was at the funeral. And uh, she, Cookie stood up and shared the testimony. She said, I've got to share this, the most amazing thing, and I've probably shared this here in the past, that, that, that happened with my husband. Said the doctors were in the room, the nurses were in the room, there's a number of people in the room. He was on, literally on, on the precipice uh, of leaving this world. Uh, he was in a coma, and, and we didn't think he could hear us or anything. And all of a sudden, he sat straight up in bed. And he looked at me, and he said, Mrs. Bush, not honey, not cookie, Mrs. Bush says, I'm leaving now. I'm going to heaven. I'll see you later. Be good. Laid down and died. Praise the Lord. What a testimony. Well, that's the testimony of a believer. Uh, and what it should be like. Well, we're going to learn from Jacob and some from Joseph on their deathbed, but uh, prior to that, uh, I want us to consider briefly anyway, what is the biblical understanding of dead or death? When you, when you think of, uh, of the world's understanding of death, the world looks at death as cessation of existence. Uh, my father was an atheist. He always said, hey, when I die, I'm die. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to go in the ground, and then that's it. It's all over. There's nothing. And, and that's what the world looks at death as. You know, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. It's all over. However many years you have in this world, whether it's 12 or 13 or 50 or 100, uh, when it's all done, it's over. Uh, you cease to exist at that point. Well, Sadly, uh, there are many Christians who 
who in the eternal sense would not look at death that way, but look at death as it's taught in the Bible in, in that type of way. For example, Lorraine Bettner. Uh, he was a Presbyterian. Uh, he's uh, no longer alive. I hope he's with the Lord. Um, he was a prolific writer, and uh, he wrote a book called The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Here's what he said about death. If a man were dead in a natural and physical sense, it would at once be readily granted that there is no further possibility of that man being able to perform any physical actions. A corpse cannot act in any way whatever. And that man would be reckoned to have taken leave of his senses who asserts that it could. If a man is dead, spiritually therefore, it is surely equally as evident that he is unable to perform any spiritual actions. See, the world says once you die, there's just a body, there's just a corpse. A lot of Christians will say it's no different than a stone. Uh, just as a stone has no ability whatsoever to respond, uh, so a corpse has no ability to respond as well. And if you're only thinking of that body, that is true. But is that what God speaks of when he speaks of spiritual death and death in the Bible? Oftentimes in, 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 in the world of these people, in the Christian world of these people, they use the analogy of a corpse or a stone to illustrate people in their lost condition. Uh, as a corpse and a stone is unable to do anything, so is the lost person who, quote, Ephesians 2, 1, part of it, is dead and trespasses and sins. And they said, well, if you're dead, you're a corpse, you're a stone. Uh, just as that corpse cannot do anything, just as a stone cannot do anything, so a person dead in trespasses and sins uh, cannot do anything as well. Is this, though, how the Bible defines death or being dead? Absolutely not. Consider initially Acts 10, 1 through 4. Remember, uh, uh, some people believe that if you're uh, unregenerate, if you're unsaved, if you're lost, you are spiritually dead. You have no ability whatsoever to do anything spiritually because you're like a stone. You're like that corpse. Consider Cornelius. There's a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian Band. No, he wasn't a rock star. He was... Uh, captain or whatever in, in, in the Roman legion. Uh, and he was over a hundred men, a centurion. When you think of centurion, how many make up a century? A hundred. Uh, so he was, a, he was over a hundred men, uh, the Italian band. Uh, he was a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now, you know Acts chapter 10. If you know the story of Acts chapter 10, you know, ultimately, you know, you know Peter is down at Jaffa, and uh, Peter gets this uh, 
this vision, but Cornelius uh, sends his men to go to Joppa so Peter can come back uh, to tell him the gospel, right? Remember the story? And, and at what point in this chapter does, you don't have to give me the exact verse, but at what point in this chapter does Cornelius actually become a believer, become saved? The end of the chapter. Between the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter when he gets saved is the story of what leads up to him accepting the Lord. So although he was religious, although he was devout, although he feared God in his life, and he gave away lots of money to people to help them, he did good works, he was lost as the day is long. He was dead in trespasses and sins. Okay? Verse 3, he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day the angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now, forget about the vision. What I want you to consider is the last portion of this passage, verse 4. Cornelius' prayers and offerings were heard by God. This is a dead man praying that God heard him. I thought dead man can't do anything spiritually. I, think, I thought if you're dead in trespasses and sins, there's nothing you can do. You're like a stone or you're like a corpse, and there's nothing you can do spiritually. Well, here's an unsaved man that prayed... And God heard those prayers, and God answered those prayers, and God says he heard those prayers through this angel who came to visit him. Here's an example of a man who is lost, that God answered his prayer. So obviously the death of, uh, or the dead and trespasses can't be the definition that, for example, Lorraine Bettner gives us. Now, Rob Congdon comments on death this way. He says this, A careful examination of biblical passages relating to death, however, reveals a decidedly different definition or understanding of what it means to be dead. A definition that stands in stark contrast to the Calvinist definition. An inductive study of the use of the word death reveals that both the Hebrew word, mawet, and the Greek word, thanatos, give an entirely different description of death. It is not the commonly held idea that simply understands death to mean the opposite of living or the absence of life. That for many signifies the end of existence. In the Old Testament, the word mawet reflects death as, quote, the consequence and the punishment of sin. It originated with sin. A grand theme of the Old Testament is God's holiness, which separates him from all that is not in harmony with his character. Death, then, in the Old Testament means ultimate separation from God due to sin. Close quote, but the emphasis is by Rob Congdon, the author. The total human individual is made of two parts. The physical, material part, and the spiritual, immaterial part. The Bible uses the word death to indicate what happens when an individual dies. 
the material and immaterial parts of the person are separated. The material part, the physical body, is unresponsive. But the immaterial part, the spirit, is still conscious and aware. It is consciously experiencing either eternal life obtained through Christ or never-ending death, God's wrath and separation from him. Death is the word used to indicate separation, not the state of being unresponsive or inanimate. It indicates the separation of the individual's two parts or the separation of the individual from God. Only the body is unresponsive as it awaits the resurrection to life. When the immaterial part of the saved individual is reunited with his or her material glorified part. Or to everlasting death, when the immaterial part of the unsaved individual is reunited with his or her material unglorified part to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, separated from God forever and he gives some scriptures. Death basically means separation. Now, we should strive, each one of us, to be biblicists. Not Baptists, not Presbyterians, not Lutherans, not, and, and if I left out the Methodists, I'm sorry, Methodists. But anyway, you can plug any religion in here. Not Calvinists, not Lutherans, not Catholics, not Calvinists, etc. We need to be biblicists. So we need to understand what the Bible teaches, not what any of these groups teach. A particular religious group may be right on in their teaching, but they may not be right on as well. We need to make sure we understand death and dead, which are correlative terms, from a biblical perspective, a biblical understanding, certainly not a worldly perspective, but also not what many in the Christian world, the evangelical Christian world, teach about death. Death or dead means separation. That's it. Separation. When you are dead in your trespasses and sins, it doesn't mean you're a rock. It doesn't mean you're a corpse. It means you're separated from God because of your sins. That's all it means. Don't re that's the biblical understanding. When, when we are dead in trespasses, we're separated from God. It doesn't, it's, we're not a corpse. We're not a stone. So spiritual death, sin, separates us from God. Physical death separates the body from the soul, spirit. We're going to look at some verses shortly. Eternal death separates the unsaved person from the presence of God forever. De if you, whenever you read death in the scriptures, think of separation. The material part might be unresponsive. It is unresponsive. Unless it's made alive again, like Jesus did with Lazarus in the body. But the immaterial part continues to exist. Death is separation. Never means corpse. Never means stone. Consider what Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of knowledge, God tells to Adam, Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, 
thou shalt surely die. Now, if, if you think of death as the world thinks of death, cessation of life, you stop existing. It's the opposite of life or living. Did Adam eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah. You know the story. Yeah. The woman made me do it. Yeah. Yeah, and the woman said, Satan made me do it, you know. So, did, when, when Adam ate of that fruit, did he die? Well, not physically. I'm glad you qualified that. He didn't die physically. He lived for almost another thousand years. I think, what, he was 960 years old, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, before he died physically. But here God says, if you eat of that fruit of the tree, <coughs> you're going to die. So how, after eating of that fruit of the tree, did Adam die? Spiritually. He was separated from God. Now ultimately he died physically, and when he died physically, his soul spirit separated from his body. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, but your iniquities have separated between your God. See, that's the essence of death, spiritual death. Our sins, our iniquities, separate us from our God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And our sins cause separation from God. So when we are dead in trespasses and sins, it's not that we're a corpse. It's not that we're a stone. That's not the teaching it's that you are separated from God by your sins. What about Genesis 35, 18? <clears throat> and it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Notice the departing. The separation. When she was dying, she separated. Her soul, the immaterial part, departed from the material part. James 2.26, and there's many, many verses we could look at in the scriptures along this line. James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The body without the spirit is dead. So the body is just a corpse. The body is just immobile. The body uh, is a rock. But is the spirit still alive? Is the spirit just as much part of that person as the body? Yes. Paul would say, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So at death, we separate from the body. And if we're a believer, what happens at death? We leave our body, but we go into the presence of God. Separation. So when you understand death biblically, it's not a rock, it's not a corpse. It, it literally speaks of separation. Sin separates us spiritually from God. Physical death separates us from our body. And that's why there will be a resurrection one day. 
Uh, eternal death is eternal separation from God, unbelievers, in hell for eternity. That is what death is, except the biblical definition. Death is inevitable. Every single one of us, including George and Gerald and Frank, even though they don't know it or deny it, we are all called to prepare for that coming day of death and our appointment with God. Now, in Amos 4.12, it's speaking of the nation of Israel and their coming destruction. But therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Because the individuals in Israel that would die, <coughs> be ready to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. And, and that admonition is the same for every one of us. We are commanded or should be under the understanding of command, prepare to meet your God, your creator, the one who brought you into existence. Isaiah 38, verse 1, speaking of Hezekiah, he was sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, <coughs> set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Hezekiah, your time's up. Put your house in order. Get ready for that day of departure. Nobody is spared death. Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. It's just a fact of life. Nobody escapes death. You know, it, it, it's something that, that, that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Certainly unsaved people don't want to talk about. Uh, nobody likes to bring up the subject of death, but it should, for, for believers, death is, is victory. Who was it that said, you know, you have one word? Yeah, victory, victory. Death is not something we should shy from. Death is not something that we should be scared of. As a believer, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. But every single person born into this world will die. Now, let me, I, I, I've shared this before. And, and how many of you think we, we are spared death if we make it to the rapture of the church? Are we spared death if, if we're raptured? Well, no, I'm, just, I'm not qualifying this. I'm just asking a question. How many of you think that we are spared death if we're raptured? Otherwise, you know, we're going to go through cancer. We're going to go through heart attack. We're going to go through a gunshot or a knife stabbing or, or whatever the case might be. But if we're raptured, we're spared death. Is that true? Then that means the rapture, we're not spared death. Correct? Well, if we're appointed on a man once to die, what, what is the definition of death? Separation. What happens at the rapture? We're more than separated from the earth. We're separated from our body. The old is left behind and the new is put on. In the twinkling of an eye, 
we shall be changed. We shall be separated from our old sinful carcass, if I could use that word. And we get a brand new body. That's all that death is. We die. It just happens so instantaneously that we don't even know it. I mean, how quick is the twinkling of an eye? Very quick. But we are changed. We are separated. We leave our old body and we get our new body instantaneously. Now, those who die prior to the rapture of the church and after the rapture of the church, for that matter, uh, you know, they get separated from their body. Uh, could be through whatever means that might happen. Cancer, earthquake, whatever the case might be. But will one day they get a new body? Yes. Now, it doesn't happen instant. When they get it, it'll be instantaneously. But that's at the resurrection when they're, when they're Natural body is changed, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and then they get that. We get it at the rapture instantaneously in the twinkling, but we die. Because dying or death is just separation. When you understand it that way, pardon? But what happens when we're caught up? Well, he doesn't say there, but look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15. Just because he doesn't say something in one place doesn't mean he doesn't give more information in another place. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and um, by the way, that's where this whole Bible study ends, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, since you brought it up now, um, uh, look at verse 50, 51. We'll start there. Behold, I show you a mystery which shall not all die. That's what sleep is, die. We shall not all be die dead. But we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So when is death swallowed up in victory? When we get the new body when we put on the incorruptible body, the immortal, immortality that God has promised us. So where is thy sting, O death? Where, O grave, is thy victory? There's no sting in death. There's no uh, victory in the grave because that's only temporary because we are going to be changed. We're going to be transformed. We are going to be separated. Now, those in the grave have been separated already from their body and their spirit. But we who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be separated from the old and we'll put on the new. That is death. It's quickly. It happens instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye. It's the separation. We put off the old, the corruptible, and we put on the new, the incorruptible, the immortal. In essence, then, we die. 
dying or death again, though, is just separation. But it happens so quickly, we won't even realize it. Because we pass from, in, from corruptible to incorruption. Yes. And that's why it's born out of man once all of us are going to die. But we're not going to the olive trees right now. Uh, you're talking about Zechariah and all that, or you're talking about, uh, you know. But anybody who gets a new body has gone through, in essence, death. Because they have put off the old and they put on the new. They've separated from the old and they've given the new. That's all it is, it's separation. The corruptible is changed. It's the corruptible is separated from the incorruptible. Because we have to have an eternal body, and we put off the corruptible body, and we get an incorruptible body. We get a perfect body. That happens at the rapture. And though 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't give the information we get in 1 Corinthians 15, it's the same event. And here it tells us what happens. We get a new body. But, but, but it happens so quickly. Um, and, and the dead in Christ get a new body at this point, too, um, in the twinkle of an eye. So, so, so death is just separation. If you, if you look at death or dead biblically that way, you, you get a whole different um, understanding uh, of things. Don't, certainly don't look at it. The world looks at it as you're just non-existent anymore. When the Bible uses death, it's separation. And yes, the talks, it may talk about a corpse. You know, I, I think of um, in Isaiah when, when the angel Lord killed the Syrian soldiers. And, uh, and there were 185,000 dead corpses. Well, that's kind of um, redundant. <laughs> you know, if you're a corpse, you're dead. If you're dead, you're a corpse. Here you have dead corpses. Um, and, and so, yes, that's, an, that's, the that's the material that is just there on the ground. But that's not, where did those people go? Were there, did, did they, there's no soul sleep. You know, you have a teaching in the Christian world that death, we cease to exist, and there's soul sleep. And we're just asleep. We're not, you know, I, I'm trying to remember who teaches that. Um, Seventh-day Adventists, Christian science might. Uh, it's just not taught in the Word of God. No, those people, those Syrian soldiers, went to hell. That's where they went if they weren't saved. Uh, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Separation. So we should look on things as the Bible understands it, not as the world wants us to understand it. So death is inevitable. So look at Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Um, and then we're going to be looking at Joseph in verse 22 on the back of this. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Uh, I, I think there are at least four things uh, that we can learn uh, about preparing for death from what happened with Jacob and with what happened with Joseph. I think there's four things that we can, can glean uh, from these uh, verses. Uh, by faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. That's the first thing. 
the second, and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, the blessing of his sons of, uh, of Joseph, um, which would be his grandchildren, uh, the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh is found in Genesis chapter 48. Now, we're not going to read that chapter. I've kind of broken it down. Verses 1 and 2, Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh appear before Jacob who's dying. Uh, Jacob speaks to Joseph in uh, verses 3 through 8. In verses 9 through 16, Jacob then, the grandfather, blesses uh, the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. But there's one very interesting verse here. Uh, in verse 16, it's all interesting, but verse 16 says this, The angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads. And let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, that, that verse has, uh, is just pregnant with, with meaning. Um, but look at, I want to look at the first part of the verse. The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. What angel? is Jacob speaking about? Well, yes, he's speaking about Jesus. Um, remember in, um, I got the passages, remember what happened in Genesis chapter 32? Jacob is wrestling with the angel, the angel of the Lord. And he said, he wouldn't let him go. He said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. That same angel of the Lord we find in many, many places in Scripture uh, in Judges chapter 13, we find it with um, uh, just, uh, what's his, Manoah, Manoah and his wife. And, and that angel of the Lord. And, and you look at both of those passages and others. I, I just put down these two, and, and we're not going to look at those. But when you look at those passages, the angel of the Lord is very clearly God himself. Now, it's... As Tom said, Jesus. It's the second person of the Godhead. It's uh, God the Son, who, uh, a theophany who took on flesh. But notice the, the angel which redeemed me from all evil. This, this is not any old angel. Not that there's any old angel. They're all old. Um, but they're not old in the sense of, uh, ah, big deal. Uh, you know, they're angels. But this is not any old angel. Can angels redeem us from evil? Who is the only one that can redeem us? God. Jesus. This is the angel of the Lord which redeemed Jacob. This is Jesus. I want you to bless the lads. He wants the blessing to come upon them from the Lord God himself. Now, ultimately, what happens in this whole thing is Joseph is a little bit dismayed because Jacob reversed the blessings with the kids. Uh, but he continues on to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And ultimately, Joseph himself is blessed by Jacob. But here's the, po here's the point that, that I want to see in all of this. Uh, first, the, the first point. Bless your children. 
or by extension, your family, your grandchildren, which is what it is here. By faith, Jacob blessed both the sons of Joseph. You know, the world looks at someone on their deathbed, um, perhaps generally speaking, I know there's exceptions, more reverentially, uh, giving consideration to that person perhaps at that time in life more than any other time in life because of the situation. Hey, Pop only has a few hours or a few days. And so there's this reverential uh, differential that's given to that dying one that there might be the opportunity more at that point for that dying person to say something or respond than any other time. Jacob took the opportunity to bless this family. Specifically his grandchildren, yes. But back in 49, right before this, or right after chapter 48, uh, he would speak of all of his children, the 12 sons of Jacob and the commands to them. And what we have at the end of chapter 49, after all of this, uh, he's addressing now his children, chapter 49, he dies right after that. So even then, he, he addresses his children and, and admonishes them with, with, with prophecy, really, with what's going to happen to them uh, in, in the future as he addresses them spiritually speaking. The point, I think, is this. This is the last time that you'll ever have to communicate your greatest desire to your kids, to your family, on your deathbed. Now, I realize not everybody makes it to their deathbed. You know, we can walk out of here and, and be hit by a car, whatever the case might be. Uh, but if you have that opportunity, it's the final time you have to communicate to your children, to your loved ones, what is your greatest desire for your children? That they have a good job? That they have a solid financial foundation for life? A good husband or wife? These certainly are important things in our world and in our existence, but they pale in what should be the most important thing, the greatest desire that we have for our family, children, grandchildren. That is salvation and a consistent walk with their Savior. Jacob communicated that to his kids. Spiritual blessings, spiritual concern. And I would submit that the, perhaps one of the first things that we should do when we're dying, given the opportunity, I realize there's different occasions. Tell your children, tell your family, this is what I want for you. My greatest desire is you know my Savior. My greatest desire is that you walk with him. That you let everything else pale in comparison to your relationship with the Lord. That should be our greatest desire. None of these other things are wrong. But when Jacob was dying, he blessed his grandchildren and he spoke to his children. And, and, and look at Genesis, and I may have it later on actually, but, but, but look at the end of Genesis 49, or I can read it to you, um, and, and what takes place after he 
speaks to all of his children. <clears throat> in Genesis 49:33, and when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, yielded up the ghost, and was gathered onto his people. That was his last act, speaking to his children about spiritual things, and he died. When we're on death's bed, if we have that opportunity, the very foremost thing in our life, in our desire, should be to tell our family, hey, above everything else, I want you to have the right relationship with, with the Lord and walk with him. What was the second thing that Jacob did? He worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Uh, the emphasis is not leaning upon the top of his staff. He was old. He was dying. He was um, uh, decrepit. He got to the point where it's probably pretty difficult to stand, so he was just leaning on his staff. But the emphasis is not leaning on his staff. The emphasis is, by faith, Jacob worshipped. And by the way, all of these, by faith, he blessed his children. By faith, he worshiped. So he told his children what he told them because he knew this was true. God is real. Heaven to gain, hell to shun. He knew this world is temporal and things of God are eternal because he knew the word of God. And so by faith, because he understood the word of God, he understood he got, at his very, at his dying breath, he worshiped. His last act, or one of the last acts of Jacob before dying, was worship. God earlier, now we looked at this a few weeks ago when we looked at uh, previous lesson on, on, on Jacob, who I, as I said back then, I think is one of the most uh, misunderstood, maligned uh, uh, individuals in the entire word of God, uh, tragically speaking. Um, you know, God's commentary on Jacob, uh, we find in Genesis 25, 27, Jacob was a plain man. Plain in the Hebrew literally means perfect or upright. God says he's a godly individual. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a perfect man. He's, a, he's an upright, righteous individual. And I would submit to you that he lived that type of life. Not perfect without sin, but perfect in honoring God. Godly and righteous until the moment he died. And he died worshiping his Lord. His desire was to please God. He lived a life of faith until his last breath. Now, knowing he was near death, Jacob gathered his children together, Genesis 49, worshiped God with them, spoke to them about spiritual things. And here we have the verse that, um, in Genesis 49, it's actually, it's uh, what, 53, I have the wrong 40, chapter 49, not verse 3. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, the last verse in the passage, 
He gathered up his feet onto his bed, yielded up the ghost, and was gathered onto his people. Can there be any better way to leave this world? Oh, you might say, well, the rapture. Okay, but you don't have any choice in the rapture. You may not have choice in your death. But if you are at the, uh, the precipice of death and, and, and you know that you are leaving this world, um, I, I would submit you have a worship service. That should be your last act. Bring your family in. Worship. Sing if you can. Praise God. What better way to leave this world? Is there a better way to leave this world than leading, lead, than leading your family in worship of God? Uh, testifying, in essence, then to the reality of your faith. You know, don't weep for me when I die. Sing a song. Throw a party. You know, rejoice. And if I have the opportunity, uh, I want a worship service on my deathbed. Don't come in crying. Come in singing. Come in praising the Lord. That's what Jacob did. He worshiped. We should do the same thing. Turn the page over. We now come to Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when he died, two things. He made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. And he gave commandment concerning his bones. So two additional challenges then as we near death. The third challenge, we looked at the first two in the life of Jacob. The third one. Joseph remembered God's work and promises in the lives of the Jewish people. By faith, Joseph made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. Now, faith is always, remember we started in, in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is uh, uh, the substance of things hoped for. Substance means ground or foundation. And, and that substance or ground or foundation of our faith is the word of God. It is unmovable, it is a rock, it is sure. And, and Joseph, as well as Jacob, as well as all the people up to this point, all the people after this point, by the way, in Hebrews chapter 11, based their faith on the truth of the word of God. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. See, you see Joseph believed the promises of God. He believed them to the core of his being. He believed that God had promised to the Jewish people a land. You can go all the way back to Genesis 12, 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 13, the Lord said unto Abram, After that lot was separated from him, <clears throat> Lift up now thine eyes, look from the place where thou art northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it to thy seed forever. All this land, it's, it's yours and your children, the people of Israel forever. Genesis 15, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the, uh, the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said unto Abraham, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom thou shalt serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Now what land was God telling to Abram, or Abraham if you want to give his name later, 
what land was God talking to Abraham about that his children would go into for 400 years? Where is Joseph? Egypt. He's dying. Now, there's still hundreds of years to go before the actuality of what would come to pass does come to pass because the children of Israel uh, have just come into the land of Egypt. You know the story, right? You know, Joseph, through a series of events, ended up in Egypt, uh, not to his choosing. Uh, and ultimately, the children of Israel came there, and they became ultimately in bondage to the pharaohs for 430 years. So when Joseph is dying, this is the very beginning of those 400 years. But he knew God had made a promise. He believed it with the totality of his being. In Genesis 48, 21, and Israel said unto Joseph, that's Jacob, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. <coughs> Son, I'm dying. But don't worry. You're going to go back to the land of your fathers. And Joseph said unto them in Genesis 15, 19, and 20, his brothers, fear not, Remember what happened? They were so, you know, their father had died. They were scared. Oh, man, Joseph has so much power in Egypt, and, and we're in all kinds of trouble. You know, he's going to take us out on us now because dad's gone, and he's going to just give us all kinds of problems. So they were fearful. So Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me. God meant it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I recognize God's hand in this entire thing. And God allowed it to happen to spare the people of Israel. And one day I know I am going back to the land. It would be his bones, but his body would be buried ultimately there. He remembered God's work and God's promises. And he rehearsed them. He told the people about them. You know, Jacob blessed his children, worshiped God. Joseph reminded the people, hey, look what God has done in the past. And what God has done in the past is a down payment, if you will, a deposit on the surety that he will bring to pass what he has promised for the children of Israel and for all things future. So he rehearsed, remembered the work of God in his promises based on the word of God. Then what did he do? By faith, Joseph gave commandment concerning his bones. The fourth thing I would suggest we need to do, take care of your final arrangements burial, financial, whatever it might be, before you die. You don't want it to be a burden on your children or relatives or anybody else. Joseph wanted to be, hey, you know what? When you leave Egypt, don't forget daddy. It's going to be 400 years, but I want you to bring my bones out of this pagan, godless country, society. Fireworks, yeah. Hey, that was four days ago. They should have learned. Yes. 
I don't want you to leave my bones in this godless society, this pagan culture in the ground. I want you to bring it back. He, 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 he told them what to do as he was dying and what they should do. It's just common sense. We should prepare for the day that we die. So it's not a burden on those that we leave behind. Um, whatever that might entail. <clears throat> Joseph believed that the Jewish people would leave Egypt. With great substance, Genesis 15, 14. And, and so he commanded that his bones be brought out. Verses 22 through 26 of Genesis 50. His desire for his final arrangements was based on his unshakable belief in the promises of God. His desire was that his final arrangements be in accord with the promises and the reality of God, not the world. He didn't want to remain in the pagan country and culture, even in death as his body laid there. Our final plans should not be based on what is best for our children or family, but for the glory of God. It doesn't say that there's not a place for including children in the distribution of our worldly goods, whatever they may be. But our primary consideration should be God's glory. How will your worldly possessions be best used for God's glory? Certainly we want our children saved. If I have a child who uh, professes to be saved and is a devout follower of Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or that ilk, there's no way under God's heaven that I want my money to go to them to go to Benny Hinn. Ain't no way I want that to happen. I would not leave a dime. Now, once it's gone I have, and I'm gone, I have no control over it. I understand that. But if you know that child is not living to the glory of God and, and, and is doing things shouldn't be done, uh, perhaps you need to rethink where you want to live, leave your finances, your worldly goods. If that child is unsaved, is that where you want them? You know, the only thing we owe our children is a spiritual heritage, and they have the responsibility of responding. And the, the ability to live in this world righteously and practically. And that can become through uh, training in, 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 a, in, a, in a job, uh, in, in a trade. Uh, spiritually, it's teaching them about the Lord and, and that type of thing. But once they, they, they leave the home, they're on their own. Doesn't mean we don't love them. Doesn't mean we don't help them out, as that might happen. But ultimately, as we're looking at death, we need to prepare for what happens. We need to ultimately do whatever we do for the glory of God. Four things in preparation for death. Bless our children. Worship God. Remember God's work and his promises to you, not just to Israel, to you. Take care of your final arrangements. And then we can, we, we read this already, but we'll read it again. 1 Corinthians 15. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruptible, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Death has no hold on a believer. Death is not something we should fear. Because Jesus has conquered the tomb, the grave, death. And our future is secure in him. So we should always abound in the work of the Lord. I think there are just some four practical things as we approach death that we get out of Jacob and Joseph in this section. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful and thankful for the redemption that comes through your Son, through our Savior, through Jesus. Through him we have life and life eternal. Death is just uh, the portal from which we pass from this world into our heavenly home. I look forward to that day, be it through the rapture or be it through some other means. Lord, it'll be a glorious time, a time of worship, a time of praise. Help us, Lord, to be settled in our heart that death has lost all its sting through Jesus. Bless our time now. Bless the fellowship and the food. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Shalom.